Man, so anybody ever bought insurance, an insurance policy without reading all the fine print? Um, and then you find, I mean, you're not supposed to do that, but I think we all do that. Uh, and then you find out later, like maybe a hailstorm comes through. Some of that's been going around. Maybe a hailstorm comes through or a flood comes through. And then you say, you know, oops, you know, um, turns out I'm not covered for this. Um, and, and, and what happens is, you know, when I, get, when I get an insurance policy for my car, my house, I shouldn't be this way, but I'm really not planning on using it. Like, I don't want to use it. I'm just getting it to check a box, right? Recently, I was um, on the phone with, uh, with an insurance company that, that, that covers our church here, our, our facilities here, and, and I was trying to nail them down. Are, are we covered for this? And back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And finally, they said, well, we'll just have to wait until that happens, and if that happens, then we would figure out if you were covered or not. And the staff all came running as they heard the sound of my head exploding um, in my office. It was, it, was, it was not pretty. No, that's not what we're going to do. But the thing is, when it comes to insurance, we, we get it thinking, I never want to use this. I'm not planning on using it. It's kind of like my gym membership, that for the past 10 months, I had it, but I wasn't using it. It wasn't something that impacted my daily, my everyday life. And my concern is that I think a lot of us, especially in our part of the world, we approach faith like that. We approach our faith as something that's a box that we check, but it's not something that we intend to use. It's not something we intend to need. Our faith is not something that we intend to impact our everyday life. Uh, I mean, I'm going to sign up for this Jesus thing, but, you know, I don't intend to really, you know, tap into this daily. And then we skip the fine print about, like, giving up your life uh, for him and that you're bought with a price. We, you know, we don't own ourselves anymore. Everything we have is his. And, and, and we don't intend often for our faith to impact our life. And so there's a reason that the book of Daniel, which we've been going through for the, next, for, for the last few weeks, will be in a few more weeks. There's a reason the book of Daniel is really popular and widely read, especially where believers are suffering or experiencing persecution. Daniel and the book of Revelation are both examples of the apocalyptic genre, and they both speak in really figurative ways and lay out this hope that God is in the process of and one day fully will turn this world right side up. And those that are humble and oppressed and hurting now will be, um, will be exalted later. And, and Daniel is popular and celebrated amongst persecuted believers because it's a book for people who understand that faith is something that they need. Daniel's a book for people who understand that faith is something that we need in our everyday life. It's not just like in this binder over here collecting dust on our shelf. It's something we need every day. The message that permeates the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign, and God is at work in this world lifting up the vulnerable, bringing down the proud, and God is faithful to those who suffer under and who resist beast-like empires. So Daniel and his friends, their life, as we think about their life, they, they, the, the book of kind of the question that hovers over every passage of Daniel is the question of how can I be faithful to God while I live in Babylon? And so Babylon is literally the place where Daniel and his friends, were, they were ripped away from their home, taken into exile there. But Babylon's also a symbol, it's a picture of wherever God's people live, um, whatever human empire we live in. And so throughout Scripture, especially again in the book of Revelation, Babylon uh, is, is used as a symbol of the world system that we live in and, 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 and the world system that we're called to, um, to, to reflect Christ in. 
So the question is, how can I be an exile far from my true home? How can I be an exile in Babylon and, and impact Babylon for Christ without having Babylon, you know, um, conform me to its image? Um, and so Daniel and his friends are a great example. Is Daniel and his friends aren't over here like sitting in a, in, a, in a corner, like with their hands crossed, their arms crossed, saying, well, Babylon's just bad, and I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Then they are investing in their culture. They're part of what's going on. They're making their Babylon a better place. They're working for the flourishing of their Babylon. So um, now we live in the greatest Babylon ever, but it's Babylon. It's, it's an empire. It's not the kingdom of God, and it's great. It's fantastic. But it's Babylon, okay? And so whenever, like, my family and I will go somewhere, we're in a parking lot or we're in a state park or something, and we see trash somewhere, I'll pick up the trash, Alma will pick up the trash, you know, and I'll say, Alma, why do we pick up trash? She says, because we want our Babylon, or we want our world to be beautiful. We want our world to be beautiful. And that's it. That, as Christians, as believers, we want to create beauty in our world. That's what God's called. He's called us to work for the flourishing of the world in which we live. Um, and Daniel and his friends do that. Um, they contribute. There's places where they accommodate to the culture around them. They dress like Babylonians. They do the Babylonian schooling. Um, they, uh, they, you know, they, but there's lines that they won't cross. Um, they accommodate where they can, but there's lines that they won't cross, and we're going to see one of those lines today. There's lines that they won't cross no matter how much Babylon threatens, no matter how much Babylon huffs and puffs. There's lines they won't cross, and spoiler alert, they know the, where those lines are before they get in the situation. And a lot of us, the reason we're struggling is we are trying to draw lines on the fly and in the moment. And well, when I get into that situation, then I'll decide what I'm going to do. But our flesh is going to do what our flesh wants if, if, if that's what happens. Daniel and his friends, they know where the lines are before they get. They've already made the decision before they get into the situation we're going to find them in today. So in Daniel 1, we see them living faithfully in a hostile culture and saying, you know what, we're not going to eat the, the king's defiled food that's been used in the service of idols. We're not going to do that. But test us and see if we can eat you know, vegetables in our own food and if, if, if we don't end up being better off. And God sustains them. Daniel 2 God provides uh, by revealing uh, the, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. And now in Daniel 3, we're going to see God deliver them from a fiery furnace. One of the most famous passages in all the Old Testament, especially from Daniel. And so the bad news that, that faces all of us is that we struggle. Bad news, we struggle with conformity. We struggle with conforming. We struggle with idolatry. And, and I think any of us could amen that. We don't, nobody's like jumping up and down to amen that right now. But the bad news for us is we all struggle with conforming. We all struggle with idolatry. We all struggle with worshiping a little G God that's not the real God. But the good news is, is that God is with his people. He's with his wandering people to strengthen and sustain us no matter what Babylon we live in, okay? So because God is faithful, big idea, because God is faithful, because God is faithful, your faith can impact your Babylon. Whether your Babylon is the school you go to every day, whether your Babylon is that place where you go to work, whether your Babylon is your street, whether your Babylon is our state, our, our local town, or, or our, our nation, because God is faithful, your faith can impact your life, and your faith can impact your Babylon. So before we, uh, we dive into talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and that really famous story, um, before we talk about their witness, we want to talk a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked king. Because before we get to the witness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we need to look at the warning 
that Nebuchadnezzar's life poses to us. Because if, if we want to be honest, um, I, mean, I find a lot of Nebuchadnezzar in myself. He's an example of a man who is in open rebellion against God, and I've been there, and we've all been there. So let's look at him first. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Now circle that word image, maybe. Think about that word image. In, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of what? An image. He had a dream of an image. And its head was of gold, and then its chest and arms were silver, then bronze, then, bronze, then, then iron. And then there was this, this uh, stone cut without hands that comes and crashes on the feet and brings the whole image down, and that stone comes to fill the whole earth. And so that head of gold was, Daniel told um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold is you and your kingdom. And then these are other kingdoms. And then this fifth kingdom is going to be the kingdom of God that comes and crashes and destroys all earthly kingdoms and comes and fills the whole world. And, Dan, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is so amazed that God would reveal to Daniel this interpretation. He falls down on his face. And he worships. And then by the next chapter, he's erected his own image. He didn't learn a lot. All right. So he, he made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, 90 feet tall. His breadth was 6 cubits, 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now there's some tongue-in-cheek stuff going on here. There's some satire here because all these different types of bureaucrats are listed. All these people who think they're so important, and yet they're just kind of cogs in a wheel and they're pawns. And they don't even know it. Verse 3, we list all those again. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates. All the officials of the province gathered for the uh, dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You were commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages, they fell down. They worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And we know from the story that there's three guys that don't fall down. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they do not fall. They do not uh, bend the knee. They do not bow down and worship this idol, this image. But there's a few things that we can... We can see about Nebuchadnezzar. There's some ways that Nebuchadnezzar's life is a warning. At the end of chapter 2, again, he falls down on his face and he worships the God of Daniel because, because the God of Daniel has revealed the interpretation of this dream. But by the next page, the next chapter, he has erected an idolatrous image of his own. When, when, when Nebuchadnezzar fell down and he worshiped Daniel's God, that wasn't a true act of repentance, apparently, what he was doing was he was trying to add one God to the buffet of all the gods he already served. And that is what we struggle with all these years later. We want to have Jesus plus, we want to have Jesus in our lives plus still be the Lord of our lives plus still worship the, the way Babylon around us worship. And God doesn't work that way. Either Christ is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. All right, And so Nebuchadnezzar just added one more God to the buffet, but that's not the way the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob works. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is amazed by what God did through Daniel, but he's not transformed. So he falls down on his face at the end of chapter 2, and he's amazed. Anybody ever been amazed 
that God did something, and then pretty quick you went right back to the way you were doing things. This is like Daniel interpreting the dream at the end of Daniel 2 is like the last night at camp where, where you sang Kumbaya or I Love You, Lord, or Reckless Love, and you're just like, yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm never going to sin again, you know, and then he just falls right, he just jumps, he leaps right back into it again, and he's a warning to us that our hearts are bent towards idolatry. Um, he, he builds this idolatrous image, and he's forcing people to worship, but he hasn't learned much, and that's what empires do. Empires want us to worship them. Part of why we believe in separation of church and state is because anytime the government's telling you how to worship, it's probably going to be wrong, okay? So we, don't, we, we believe in separation, okay? Our hearts are bent towards rebellious idolatry. In our fallenness, we're prone to want people around us to worship us more than they worship God. Nebuchadnezzar's image was an image to his gods, but it really was about his ego. And in Nebuchadnezzar's fallenness, he wanted people to worship him more than he wanted people to worship God. There was a time in mine and Sonda's marriage where you know, it had been rough for several years, and we didn't know how to get help. We didn't know who to talk to. We didn't, um, we didn't think we could talk to anybody. And, um, and things had gotten rough between us. Resentment had set in. And, uh, and she started uh, uh, meeting uh, with a counselor who really began to, and I was meeting with a counselor, and we both got help. Sometimes we got to get help. Anybody? Yeah? Okay. And so we got help. It's a few years ago, and we got some help, and, and I saw Sonda start to grow in Christ, and I saw her start to seek Christ more than she was seeking me. How do you think I liked that? My flesh did not like that. I was worried that, man, I'm going to lose this woman. Like, I want things to go back to the way they were. And yet, what happened was, man, God transformed Sonda and he transformed me into people that are able to join each other in this incredible partnership. Do we do it perfectly? No, but we're on the same team and we're on the same page and there was a lot of time we weren't. And what often happens in marriage is one of you is growing in the Lord and the other one will sabotage that. I've seen wives pray that their husband will come to know the Lord for years and years and years and then he does and then she'll sabotage it. And I've seen the opposite happen too. Because there's something in us that's like Nebuchadnezzar. We want to be the one worshipped. We don't want to see Christ getting worshipped. This happens in friendship. This happens in community. There's a part of our fallenness that we want worship for ourselves more than we want it for God. And, and another thing we see here is that almost, that almost everybody drinks the Kool-Aid without even thinking about it. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the magistrates. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, everybody bow down and worship or I'm going to throw you into a fire. They're okay, and they just bow down and worship the image. And, and that's the satire here. That's how Daniel is poking fun here. All these big wig, fancy people just do whatever Babylon tells them to do and they don't even think about it. They don't even think about the consequences. They just drink the Kool-Aid. They're mindless and they're robotic and... That begs the question, what Kool-Aid are we drinking? What Kool-Aid are you drinking right now? What are you taking that Babylon has just handed you and you've just drank it down and just because Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar said to do it, so I did it. You, you see the parallel here? Everybody just does what their culture tells them to do. They just bow down like little robots, like little lemmings, and they're not even thinking for themselves. How are we doing that? How are you doing that? What Kool-Aid are you drinking? And so there's, there's this warning of Nebuchadnezzar, but then there's this witness. Is everybody alive? Yeah. Cool. There's this witness from Abraham and uh, Abraham. I don't know where he came from. There's this witness of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Verse 8, therefore at the time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, every kind of music will fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not will be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the fears of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the golden image that you have set up. So again, there's this question hovering through Daniel. How can I live faithfully in exile? How can I interact with the Babylon around me without letting the Babylon around me um, conform me? How can I live faithfully? And so a few ways we see what real faith looks like in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, one, real faith is countercultural. And countercultural faith stands out. The rest of the culture was just tripping over themselves to bow down to the image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are countercultural. They stand out. In a world that's in open rebellion, you don't stand out by being rebellious. When everybody is being rebellious, it's kind of hard to stand out by being rebellious. Everybody that's rebellious against God ends up kind of looking the same. And yet, here's these three that put God first, and they stand out. Countercultural faith stands out. We don't stand out by doing what everybody's doing. We stand out by seeking God first. It's interesting um, how everybody that's out there screaming against conformity ends up conforming to one another. Lukewarm faith, if, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had had lukewarm faith, it would have been really easy for them to say, man, did God really say, though, not to bow down to an idol. I mean, is that really what the second commandment says when it says don't worship any graven image? I mean, there's all kinds of ways you could interpret that. Is that really what God said? That's what lukewarm faith does. Lukewarm faith can justify anything. You ever notice if you really want to do something, you can talk yourself into it? Everybody else in Babylon's doing this. I mean, it can't be that big of a deal. Babylon's doing it. Why don't I do it? You can talk yourself into anything. I can talk myself into anything. We can justify anything. And there was somebody a long time ago that said, does God's word really say? Don't be that guy. Countercultural faith will at times draw criticism. Notice these government officials come and they say, hey, these Jews, look at what they're doing. So there's a racial and an ethnic thing going on here because the Jews are a racial and an ethnic minority. And there's also a, 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 a way that their faith is, is making them stand out. Uh, their, their faith is countercultural. Real faith is actually part of your life. I'm not talking about the faith that you leave in the back seat between Sundays. I'm talking about the faith that's actually part of our lives will cost you some friends. Anybody know that? Real faith's going to cost you some friends, but it may gain you a family. Real faith may mean you eat some lunches by yourself and spend some Friday nights alone. I have. I survived. You will. Real faith is fleshed out in real community. Uh, we've, been, we've had the, the Marvel movies on loop in my house for ever now. And, and uh, uh, so one that, that, that we've been on lately has been Guardians of the Galaxy. And there's this scene where Peter Quill, a.k.a. Star-Lord, is trying to give this pep talk so they can go and, and fight this impossible battle, right? And he looks around and he sees, I see a bunch of losers. He says, and everybody kind of looks like you just look like he says, no, I mean, I see a bunch of people 
that have lost a lot. And he presents his plan, and you know, there's certain death and all those things, and Gomorrah, this really stoic character, says, she says, I've spent all my life surrounded by enemies. It would be an honor to die surrounded by friends. That's exactly what's going on here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have spent their life surrounded by enemies. And now they have an opportunity to die. But they don't die alone. There's community here. They're going to walk through this experience. They're going to walk through this fiery furnace. And they're going to have the shared communal experience. They're going to walk through this with a bond that is going to be unbreakable because they walk through this fire together. Real faith may cost you some friends, but it's going to gain you a family. Real faith is fleshed out in real community. And so... If you're going to know what kind of Kool-Aid you're drinking, you need to have some people that are in your Kool-Aid. If you're going to know whether you're drinking the Kool-Aid or not, you need some people that you're allowing to be in your Kool-Aid. You need some people that are in your business. You got people in your business. Or Or the second somebody gets in your business, do you shut them out? I can't be the only gatekeeper that knows am I conforming to Babylon or not I need people in my life that are helping me see what I am too blind in self-righteousness or whatever sin to see real faith is fleshed out in real community Countercultural faith is characterized by conviction before Shadrach Meshach and Abednego arrived at this moment they knew what they were going to do they didn't wait and see what felt right they knew where the line was. They had already drawn the line. I always think about uh, one of my favorite movies, um, Lonesome Dove, right? A little shift from Guardians of the Galaxy, Lonesome Dove. And Jake Spoon has fallen in with, uh, you know, with the, the, this uh, rough crowd, and they, they kill the sodbusters, they burn their bodies, and when Call and, and Gus, Woodrow and, and Gus, they, they have to hang their friend, they have to hang Gus, uh, Jake Spoon, and, and, and Jake Spoon's sitting there with the, the noose around his neck, and and, and they say, you crossed a line, Jake. He said, I, know, I didn't see no line. And if you don't draw the line, you're not going to see it when it comes. If you don't draw the line now, you're going to blow right past it. The Jewish people, for hundreds of years after this, will be persecuted everywhere they go because they're different. They will be hundreds of years after this, cast in the fiery furnaces in Nazi Germany. And this really important question is asked, really the central question of the book is asked by Nebuchadnezzar. If you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That's the question of the book. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? It basically, Shadrach, and, uh, Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego say, it ain't the one you built. What God are you trusting to deliver you? What God are you trusting to save you? What God are you trusting to make your life worthwhile? He says, what God can deliver you? That's going to be the question that governs the rest of this book. That's going to be the question 600 years later that the people of Israel are still asking when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate and he lays down his life on the cross for you and me. So what do they say? Verse uh, 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we, may have no need, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
burn, right? They just say, we don't, we don't need to give you an answer. We have a higher authority. So they've bent, they've been respectful to Babylon all this time, but there comes a point where they've got a line. Verse 17, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. He says, catch that, so important. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship. This becomes the defining story for hundreds of years for this people that resists. Faith says God can, but even if he doesn't. See, these, these men have watched their city be destroyed. They've, they've seen their temple burned. They were torn away from their families and marched hundreds of miles in chains and put into the Babylonian indoctrination machine. Now they've seen their fellow uh, their, their fellow covenant people fall down on their face and worship this image. If anybody ever had a reason to doubt that God would come through, these guys have every justification that doubt, to doubt that God would come through. And yet they say, God can, but even if he doesn't, we're going to trust him. Faith says, I believe God can give me that promotion, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to be faithful where he has placed me. Faith says, I believe God can heal my cancer, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to serve him with every molecule of my being for as many days as I have left on this earth. Faith says, I believe God will provide me with a spouse, but even if he doesn't, I'll not defile myself, I will not give myself away unworthily, even if I die single and celibate, I will inherit the kingdom of God and I will win. God can. I believe God will deliver me even, faith says, I believe God can deliver me even from the desire of my addiction. But even if he doesn't, even if I continue to want this thing and carry this cross the rest of my life, until I see him face to face, I'm going to trust him. I believe God can bless me financially, faith says, but even if he doesn't, even if I'm living in this rat hole the rest of my life, I'm going to live a life of generosity and I'm going to live a life of hospitality I'm going to be generous with what I have. I believe God can, but even if he doesn't. Faith isn't a promise that fiery furnaces won't come. Faith is a promise that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will sustain you in whatever furnace you find yourself in. God's presence is what we see next. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's filled with fury. His face contorts. He's mad. He, he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter, which... There's going to be a lot of symbolic language through Daniel. It probably doesn't have literally a, a gauge to determine it seven times hotter. It's just get it as hot as it'll go. We remember the story that as the guards go to, to, to throw these three friends in, it's so hot the guards are burned up. Verse 24. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. His three friends are thrown into a furnace. It's heated as hot as it'll go, and then Nebuchadnezzar sees this fourth person walking around in there with them. Some say it's an angel. 
Some believe, I believe, this is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus manifesting himself, and it's so important that this fourth man shows up at the place of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's deepest suffering. It's important. God shows up at the moment, not of their deepest joy, but of their deepest pain. When we meet suffering with faith, we discover what it means to be a living sacrifice. I know when Paul wrote Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. When he said, present your body as a living sacrifice, he had to have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in mind. When we meet suffering with faith, we discover that God uses the fire intended to destroy you to actually set you free. Nebuchadnezzar said, we threw three dudes in there and they were bound up. I see four guys walking around free. When your suffering is met with faith, what evil meant to enslave you actually becomes part of God's tool to set you free. Richard Foster said once, the fires of heaven are hotter than the fires of hell. God's flames hurt, but they set us free. When we meet suffering with faith, you develop community with other people who are walking by faith too. Man, nobody's going to take this shared experience from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But you know, when the heat turns up, when the, when the flames get hot, that's often when we cut and run from the people in our lives. That's when we give up on our relationships, our friends, our community, our life group, our marriage, whatever. But when those flames are hot, That's when God is wanting to forge something. Community gets forged, not just found. And to forge something requires a lot of heat. You develop community with others who are walking by faith too. And finally, we deepen our dependence on the God who's with us in the flames. This fourth man steps into the steps into the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And John chapter 1 says that Jesus stepped into our situation. He said, He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us among us. He stepped into our mess. So what happens next? Repentance. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 26, came near the door. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire had not had any power over their bodies. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Neb answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and declared his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb. He's all about tearing people limb from limb. I don't know what it is with this guy. But he's amazed again. But we're going to find by the next chapter he's still not transformed. But repentance happens. Real faith is characterized by being countercultural. Real faith draws criticism. Real, friend might cost you, real faith might cost you some friends. Real faith is characterized by conviction, and real, real faith leads to conversion. And some critics got converted this day. What kind of an example would a watered down, just like everybody else, faith have been? If, Nebu- if, if, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had just been like everybody else, what witness would that have been? They were a little weird. Whenever you don't do just what Babylon does, you're weird, right? And none of us want to be weird. Well, guess what? These guys were weird. And God used them. So what Kool-Aid have you been drinking? Let's think about some Kool-Aid 
being shared in, in our Babylon, the Babylon we live in. If we're going to talk about our Babylon and we're going to talk about repentance, one area where repentance is constantly needed is for the way we drank the Kool-Aid and have drank the Kool-Aid of racism in our country. For hundreds of years, pseudoscientists and, you know, fake, uh, fake experts built a case in our country right here where we live that said that your character and your quality as a human being was linked to the level of pigmentation in your skin. And people in our nation drank that Kool-Aid like there was no tomorrow. And that Kool-Aid continues to be represented in the jokes that are told and the conversations that happen. That idol still casts a shadow over our Babylon. Recently, there was a 19-year-old young man who went and shot up a synagogue. Um, and he had written a manifesto about Jews and about racial minorities. And he had also spelled out that he believed he was a Christian. He was very committed to an evangelical church. After reading his manifesto, his pastor said, we cannot pretend as though we didn't have some responsibility for him. He was radicalized into white nationalism from within the very midst of our church. There's a time and a moment in which we're living where white nationalism, white supremacy is on a rise. And that is the opposite of, that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't get ahead of that by pretending it doesn't exist. We get ahead of it by acknowledging how it does exist and repenting of it and turning from it. There's an idolatry in our culture of race. There's an idolatry in our culture of sex. You ever think you would say, oh good, I'm glad he's talking about sex now. Feel the relief. Now we're not talking about race anymore. There's, not, there's an idolization of, of sex and sexuality. Our Babylon says, man, why would you wait to be in a covenant relationship? I mean, covenant relationship, marriage, that's, man, that's for the birds. And a covenant relationship, even if you're in one, it's temporary. It can be discarded anytime you want to. Our Babylon says, man, if it feels good, if it's fun, if it's, you know, just, just be you. Just do what you want to do. And we're drinking the Kool-Aid. We're paying the price. There's an idolization of self. Anybody drank that Kool-Aid lately? It's all about me, what I want, what I need, my desires. There's an idolatry of status. There's an idolatry of safety. You know, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been raised in our world where safety was the idol, I don't know that they would have made the stand that they made. Because the stand they made was very, very unsafe. Think about what Kool-Aid you're drinking how can you repent of that? Are there people in your life that can help you know how you're... By? i got to have people into my life, speaking into my life, helping me see where I'm wrong. I think you do too. So Jesus is better than even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jesus stepped into our furnace. He stepped into our world. He is the one who's able to save. He is the one, Daniel 3.29, who's able to deliver. He stepped into our furnace. He stepped onto our cross, and no one rescued him. No one rescued him. He suffered um, isolation. He didn't have three other guys in their 
with him. He suffered in isolation for you and me. We see in this passage when Nebuchadnezzar is challenged, he responds with wrath, with fury. Evil kings have wrath, but good kings have wrath too. You know, you're ever at the grocery store and your kiddo tries to run out in the parking lot? Do you respond with wrath? Is that because you hate your child? No, it's because you love them. And you have wrath towards anything that's going to harm them. And that's the way God loves you. God's wrath is directed at anything that's going to harm you, anything that's going to damage you, anything that's going to be destructive to you, whether you know it or not, whether you realize it as destructive or not, his wrath is bent towards anything destructive of your heart and your relationship. And Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross, and he bore it alone, and he was not rescued. But he came through death and into resurrection life after praying, not my will, but yours be done. So as the band comes up, I want to close again with some words of C.T. Studd. Man, I'm on a C.T. Studd kick lately. Quoted him last week. I'm going to quote him again, mainly because I'm envious of his name. But C.T. Studd, all right? Because God is faithful. Your faith, listen, your faith can impact your life, must impact your life and your Babylon. C.T. Studd over 100 years ago wrote, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I believe, whatever your situation is, I believe God can. But even if he doesn't, I'm going to serve him. Because I've only got one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.